your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, we're in verses 29 to 34. Uh, so uh, again, I, I've said this each week that usually we, Sunday evening, we, we pick up what we discuss in the morning. But since we're doing a series on the resurrection, um, there is a whole chapter dedicated to the subject. So we have a topical discussion of the resurrection on Sunday mornings where we're erring on the side of Christ's resurrection. And then there's an exegetical series we're doing in the evening on the resurrection, which does both the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection. So we're getting it on both sides. So uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, if you'll stand with me in reverence of God's word, we'll read these five verses. Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, do people mean... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask as we come to this text, you would give us a right understanding application of it. Open our hearts and our minds, our, our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet. And may I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. See you. A few years ago, I was doing research on an ancestor of mine, and I found something that really took me aback, and that was that it, it had a list of my ancestors' birth, their marriage, their kids, where they lived, uh, where they died, the year they died, and any sort of important facts in between. And then it told me the year in which they were baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which was odd because that church didn't exist when they were alive. What had happened, it gave me the year, was only within the last, you know, now and maybe a little over 10 years, but roughly about 10 years ago when they were actually baptized. I know that uh, this person couldn't have been a Mormon, again, Joseph Smith, hadn't you know had the experience with the angel Moroni but also knew that this person uh, would never have been a Mormon nor is anyone that I'm aware of uh, really part of that church but it may come to surprise to many of us to discover that this is an essential part of Mormon theology a baptism of the dead in fact if you've ever done much genealogical exploration uh, of, of your family or other families or whatnot, you, you may find that a lot of those uh, influential and large organizations, Ancestry.com and some others, are either connected to the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints or have their headquarters in Salt Lake City or around Salt Lake City. Uh, I remember several years ago, I went to Salt Lake City as a uh, vision tour with the KBC. Uh, we had met some church planters and, and uh, had hoped to connect with some of them, still do hope to do that in, in the future. And uh, th there they were. There's Ancestry.com and there. You can go right down the line, a bunch of them there. And, and the reason they are found there is because of Mormon theology, is 
How can you uh, baptize for someone's salvation if you don't know who they are? You don't have their information. You know, you, you need that stuff. And so they do it on the theological side. You and I may do it just out of curiosity and out of an interest as to where does my family line come from? Uh, so you have these two sides working together to, to develop a major database of genealogical records. Well, I was thinking about that this week and reading this text that although our secular society um, doesn't talk a whole lot about life after death, part of the reason is because we don't like to think about death. And the idea of life after death takes us beyond our material worldview. And so it seems, uh, it seems like we're, we're, we're not um, – well, it's just not something we, we, we talk with much certainty as a secular society. But, but I think what Paul is demonstrating in this chapter is that that is a practical subject. What you believe about the afterlife affects what you believe in the before life, right? Um, it, it really affects who, who we are and how we live our lives. And what Paul does in talking about the issue of our future resurrection is he gives us three practical areas of application. The first is given here in verse 29, and that is that the resurrection helps us grieve. One of the major challenges that young ministers have, and they all go through this. I went through this, and I remember the day I went through this. I called my pastor about 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, probably about 6 or 7 his time. We're an hour behind. And I had a simple question. I'm about to go visit a family I've never met with before who just lost someone. I know nothing about the deceased. I know nothing about this family. I'm just trying to be a good pastor of the third cousin twice removed on the daddy's side who asked me to come. What do I say? I, every young minister has this. What do you say at a funeral of a, a deceased person in a family you don't know who they are? Well, we can make that an even more difficult situation. Not only do you not know who they are, but what you do know isn't good. The very likelihood this person deceased never made a profession of faith, they had no interest in matters of faith, and that the entire family is woefully lost. What do you say in those sort of circumstances? One of the things I have found is even the most hardened of families they still believe something in about the afterlife. They may not be able to get, articulate a reasonable conclusion. They haven't really thought it through. Much of what they articulate, they just borrow from pop culture. But, but there is certainly something there. No matter how secular, pagan, or even atheistic they, they might be. I remember one family in particular during our time here in Frankfurt, actually. Um, this family was lost, and, and, and the situation was really tragic. It was an overdose situation. I, I knew uh, only one person in the family, which is how I, I, I was asked to do this funeral, and lostness all around, everywhere you went. It wasn't just lostness. It was hopelessness. And, and I remember that uh, uh, the mom of the deceased came up to me, and, and she had a poem she wanted me to read. And so I read the poem. And there was no way I could, in, 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 to be a minister of the gospel, read this poem. It was a lot about, you know, when I go to the trees, I know you're there. When the wind blows, I, I know you're with me. Very panentheistic sort of theology that really contradicts everything I believe about life, death, 
in, in the afterlife. And so uh, we, we had to talk about it. It was interesting. Here's a family who have no interest in matters of religion. And yet, when faced with death, suddenly there is something there that they are trying to, to, to hold on to. Well, ignorance of Scripture will lead us down to odd and dangerous paths. And the Corinthians are no different. I'm willing to bet that when, when we first read this a minute ago, verse 29 was a weird verse. Because it implies the Corinthians are baptizing for the dead. And the question you're wanting the answer is, are we supposed to be baptizing for the dead? The answer is no. Well, preacher, why is it then in the Bible? Right? And, and then that can be quite a sticky situation. We want to take the Bible literally. We want to take the Bible seriously. But isn't that in the Bible? Can I just add just, just sort of just as a broad category here that... That just because it is mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean it is proclaimed by the Bible. There's a difference between description and prescription. Right? There's a lot of things in the Bible that the Bible describes. It doesn't mean we have to go do. Right? There is a distinction here. Paul is describing something being done, but in no way does Paul or anywhere else in the Bible prescribe this practice. So whether it is the Corinthian church, and I think that's the implication, it's the members of this church, or it's the broader practice of this city, clearly they are engaging in what is known as baptism of the dead. Now this practice, in how, whatever its forms, is not new. Let me give you a similar, though different, uh, 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 situation. In the 16th century, a monk turned pastor turned theologian it was his pastor's church and a sales weasel came to town and he tried to convince people that if you bought this piece of paper you can buy it so that your loved ones can get out of purgatory and this sales weasel was selling indulgences that went to pay for the saint peter's basilica that the pope now uses and that monk turned pastor turned theologian was martin luther and we date the launch of the Great Reformation to October 31st, All Hallows' Eve, 1517, when he posted his infamous 95 Theses. It was in response, a pastoral and a theological response to the selling of indulgence. My favorite one is Thesis number 82. And what he basically argues is, if the Pope has the power to empty purgatory... He should do it out of Christian love and not for sale. I love that. Like, that is check, meet, mate, game over. Right? I love that. that. That is so simple. Now, you had to make it all fancy and theological, but it's, it's, it's a very simple point that one can get the, the, their mind around. But that is basically the idea. And, and it, it raises the question of salvation after death. Whether people try to baptize for the dead, like the Mormon church, indulgences like the Roman Catholic church, or other means, this isn't uncommon. Um, one issue that, that it seems to come up just at random times is the issue of what's known as post-mortem salvation. Some of QCS Lewis have believed in that. I don't think that's the case. They do it based off great divorce, which is more allegory than it is anything. And there have been people who have taught him, my alma mater, who, who uh, leaned in this direction. The idea is we die and we get one more opportunity after we die to reject Christ. You're just not going to find any of that in the Bible. 
But the reason why the Corinthians were practicing baptism of the dead remains a mystery. Paul gives us no background to it. Uh, he, he, he only mentions it in this single verse. So what do we do with this real quick? First of all, the Bible condemns this practice, right? It is, first of all, rank heresy. It is a fundamental rejection of justification by faith alone. Not only that, it makes faith unnecessary. Think about it. If salvation can be be cured by someone else being baptized for you, this is what I want us to do. I want you to put in your last will and testament, have your third cousin twice removed on your daddy's side. I want that person to be baptized for you. It's in the will. They have to do it by law. Right? And, and, and that way, what, you spend, what, three hours in, 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 in hell? That's, where, that's okay. They're going to get you out in no time, right? Find the, locust, the, 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 the local priest or pastor, whatever. Find a river or a baptistry or just a big bucket somewhere and just dive in. Get your loved ones out of hell. In fact, why aren't you doing that right now, right? right? You can see the temptation of the Mormon church. What is the, what is the point of faith if we can bypass all of that by simply having someone else be dunked for us. It simply makes no sense. The command of Scripture is repent and believe the gospel. Secondly, what we need to see, particularly as the point it serves in this text, is that it reveals eternity on our hearts. Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes. He has made everything beautiful in his time. He has put eternity into man's hearts. He's put eternity into man's heart. That's Paul's point, that even those who don't believe in the resurrection, that's his point. Some of you in the church, he's saying, you don't believe in the resurrection, yet you're doing this weird thing where you're baptizing for the dead. Why would you do that? It makes absolutely no sense. Listen to how people talk amid death and sorrow, and you'll find that what Solomon said is true. Very few people, Although they may live as practical atheists, rarely die as one. They rarely mourn as one. You go up to them and they don't believe a word about Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection. They, they don't believe in, in any of those religions. They live as practical atheists. They have no functional uh, theology whatsoever. And here comes someone special in their lives who has died and they are crying. And you're saying, why are you crying? They were just... Uh, They're just atoms that came from a big cosmic belch in space from billions of years ago. You're an accident. Life is meaningless. Your tears are meaningless. Move on with this pointless life. Have you ever counseled that before? No. It's true. Right? If materialism is all that there is, whether you live, whether you die, it's ultimately meaningless. But but, But atheists don't... Encourage each other. They don't, they don't comfort each other, that sort of language. Why? Be consistent with the religion. How? Because God has written eternity on our hearts. Paul is not justifying the practice of baptizing them of the dead. He is pointing out a contradiction. How can you deny the resurrection when you are practicing this? It makes no sense. All of this demonstrates that when we grieve, we are grasping for hope. In the Marvel series, WandaVision, one of the main characters, Vision, uh, he, he is trying to comfort Wanda, who is going through this process of grief. And he says, quote, what is grief but love persevering? It's a great line. However, I think it's incomplete. 
though it is mostly true, we must ask if this love in the form of grief actually transcends death. And if not, then what is it really we are experiencing? Love must be given and received. This is why grief is so wounding. We can, we, we're still trying to express love, but, 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 but it can't be received or given back, right? It's a deep wound that we have, right? So we need more than sentimental love to heal from grief. What we need is hope, and we need hope that goes beyond the grave. We need, we need this. You, you will not get that from materialism, you will not get it from secularism, you will not get it from theological liberalism, or even baptizing the dead. Only the resurrection can heal. So not only does the resurrection help us with grief, it, it, it fuels boldness. Notice what Paul says in the rest of verse 29 going down to verse, verse 31. So he mentions baptism of the dead, and he says, um, uh, verse uh, 30, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. One of the things you, you'll find is that the fear of death makes us rather cautious, right? I, I still remember I was a teenager when I, I thought I came up on my first drunk driver. It's a scary moment, isn't it? Fortunately, the car was in front of us. Uh, my wife and I were dating. She was sound asleep because that's what girls in love do when you're dating. And, and this is before she became a mom and, and didn't like my driving all of a sudden. But so, so she's sound asleep. And I remember this guy swerving all over the place. It was down 127, um, uh, just past Glencoe coming home, uh, Ointon. And, and it's a curvy road. And, and this guy's all over the place. I woke her up and said, I think this guy's drunk. I'm pulling back. And I put a big distance between he and I, right? Danger is cause for caution. Now, one of the things, you know, I like the difference between men and women. And one of the things that uh, uh, scholars have found and, and those in these fields have found is that one of the areas men and women are different is, is that women experience higher rates of negative emotion than men, right? And this, I think once, once you have that, it, it becomes pretty apparent. I can prove it to you really quick, really quick, okay? This meme here, I didn't put all the details here. This is my favorite meme, but the way it usually is written is, in, in this one, is it'll say something like, what dad sees, okay? In the middle one, it'll say, what mom sees. And then on the one on the far right, what grandma sees, right? That's a funny meme, right? Because it's true, right? I got two little ones. I, I got nieces and nephews on both sides of the family. And you better believe it. I get these kids. I'm, right, just let's fly, baby, right? And we just, you do that till your arms fall off, right? And they love it. They love, if a kid is crying, grab them up and throw them in the air, right? Even if, if you don't catch them, they're going to love it, right? And every time, Every time, all the women around, you be careful with that. Don't you dare drop them. Like, yeah, I came in today thinking it would be cool if, if nephew Lemur over here, if I threw his head through the ceiling, see if he can get stuck, and if he gets loose, just let him fall. That's what I want to do today, right? The men aren't having this conversation. They're like, my turn, dude, right? Let's see if it's back and throw it up higher. That's men, right? You ladies, on the other hand, all you see is everything bad that can happen. Right? Get, get mom and dad, and little Johnny's going to go up the, the slide. Dad's down there, and he's going to act like he's going to catch, right? And he's not going to. It's a slide. We've all survived the slides. But mom, on the other hand, you be careful. It's a really big fall. And you, you, you just, right? She's she going to give all these rules, right? It's why we've become a sissified culture. We've become a matriarchal culture, right? 
women experience more negative emotion than, than men. And that is, and what we see is that the fear of being harmed is, is enough to cause us to push back. Christianity, on the other hand, is unique in this situation. It was not born out of military or political triumph, but it was born out of governmental injustice. Christianity exists because a Jewish carpenter was unjustly crucified by imperial Rome. That's why Christianity exists. It exists simply because a guy was executed publicly. That's our story, right? We can't brag about anything else. That is our Genesis story. Is the, and, in that, and if the story ended at Calvary, there wouldn't be Christianity as we understand it today. Somehow, cowardly fishermen became bold, fearless preachers. The reason was the resurrection. And so the resurrection spurs fearlessness. And that fearlessness continues even today. I shared the story with you when I was in Indianapolis last week. The Wilberforce Award winner is a Methodist minister in Africa. Again, I shared this story last week, uh, but I, lo- I actually love the story. He received the text uh, with a picture of Osama bin Laden saying, you're next. And he responded with a picture of Jesus. You're next, right? Here's a guy who is, it's, it's a threat on his life. And he, he had already suffered severe persecution. His response is not, hey, I need to get more security around me. It's if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down preaching Jesus. That's something we American Christians are going to have to get a hold of. You cannot stay safe as a Christian. Bad things are going to happen to us. Imprisonment, fining, uh, execution, abuse, injustice, whatever. Christians around the world understand this, except for in the West so far. Right? And so this fearlessness comes from the resurrection. This is Paul's point in 30 and 31. Notice in verse 29 with the baptism of the dead, he talks about what they do. And it makes no sense that they do it. After all, they don't believe in the resurrection, yet they're doing this. In verse 30 and 31, he explores what we do. Paul doesn't baptize for the dead, which is nothing more than empty ritual. Instead, he chooses to suffer for the living Christ. In fact, notice verse 30, he says that the early Christians were in danger every hour. Why would Christians around the world endanger their lives for nothing? Likewise, why, would, why wouldn't you live radically for Christ for, for, um, for value that, 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 that is beyond what this world can offer? Right? Isn't that what the resurrection is all about? I'm fearless because I know one who's conquered the dead. And so you can't do anything to me. I also know there is value greater than what you can offer me even now. So why not live boldly? The resurrection fuels boldness and gives hope when boldness leads to danger. Right now, there are Christians singing hymns of praise in the dark, hoping the communists won't come. Right now. Right now, there are Christians who are listening some do talk about 1 Corinthians 15, knowing at any point the village chief would come in and have them all executed. Right now, right now it's happening. And what is it that in, it emboldens them? Christ is risen. He is risen in death, indeed. What can we really lose in this life that we haven't already gained in the next? Here's the third and final thing. The resurrection leads to holiness. Notice the language in verse 32. Um, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus 
If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I want you to notice the connection here Paul makes between boldness and holiness. Right? If it doesn't make sense for you to boldly proclaim Christ and not follow him in your daily life. But if you're not following him in your daily life, you will not boldly proclaim him publicly. The two are connected. This reference to beast in verse 32 has, has gotten a lot of debate. It, it is possible Paul was literally thrown into a Roman arena by which he would have to wrestle a lion or something like that. It's unlikely because Paul is a Roman citizen. Uh, it will come later that he'll claim, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't treat me like that. So, uh, you know, it's possible that citizenship was was temporarily revoked and all that. But, but so, so it's possible, it's literal. He did, after all, claim that he fought a lion, right? It's 2 Timothy 4. Lord stood by me, strengthened me, so that through me, uh, fully proclaim all the Gentiles my here, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, I, I don't know if that's literal or not. To be rescued from the lion's mouth is, is likely a reference to the story of Daniel. Just as God delivered Daniel, so God delivered Paul. And that you can read it that way, but it could be literal, may not be, I, I don't know. But besides, but all of that it misses the point. Paul clearly suffered in Ephesus. Go back to the book of Acts, and he started a riot. Now, I want to hear who, who here, your preaching was so effective, people took to the streets looking for you, right? I mean, that's, that's something to put on a resume. Search committee comes. Hey, have you, has the Lord ever used you? Yeah, one time. I caused the riot in a major city, right? Right, And I was almost executed, right? That's, that's something to put on a resume. Anyways, so, 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 so you notice he, he's saying that, why would I face off beasts if I refuse to live faithfully in the gospel? Right? The, the two are, are connected. In fact, he says, if Christ is not risen, and therefore there's no resurrection of the dead, what motivation do we have to be good? I really want you to pause and consider that. That's a good apologetic uh, way to address issues of, of atheism, paganism, secularism. But you have to really think, why should we be good people? What's really motivating you? If you take evolution at its logical conclusion, the only moral stance you have is survival of the fittest. If only the fittest survive and you stand in my way, Anything I do to overcome you is now justified. I can cheat, I can lie, I can steal, I can ruin your reputation, whatever. Because it's all about survival of the fittest. You have to explain where does morality come from? And why do we say some things are good and some things are bad? C.S. Lewis basically came to faith on the issue of morality. That question of where does it stem from? If there is a law, there must be a law giver. Lewis's philosophical point wasn't that we all agree on what is right and wrong, that we all agree that there is a right and wrong. You and I may disagree on some specifics, but we agree that there is one. Right? For, for, if we had a sign out here that said, no drinks, the most hardened guy out there can come in, and even if he brings his drink in, he's going to hide it at first, Right? Right? Because we understand innately that there, there, there is a right and wrong. And Paul's point is, is that if there is no judgment, if there is no resurrection from the dead, explain to me 
why we should follow Jesus, why we should be good in general, even without religious language or Jesus. Why do anything good? This worldview he's articulating 1,800 years in advance is known as nihilism. It is the predominant worldview of this culture, influenced by Friedrich Nietzsche and others. And it basically says, to quote Paul, who's quoting a proverb, let us eat, let us drink, let us be merry, tomorrow we die. Tomorrow we die. What does it matter? You're just going to rot in the ground. There's no responsibility, no judgment, no account. You just eat and drink and be merry. This is all you have. You, I remember growing up, there was a slogan, he who dies with the most toys wins. Christians would respond with, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Right? I also grew up with the slogan, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Right? So what good is, is all of that? But it does reveal an American way of thinking. If death is the great end, there's no resurrection, then just get everything you have. But what the nihilist comes and says, what good is all that? You're going to die anyways. All that's left is emptiness in pursuit of eternity, I would say, or power. Does that help you understand our world today? We don't actually believe chopping up kids is good. What we believe is if it empowers us, we believe it is good. Power is the name of the game. Control is the name of the game. It's nihilism put in the culture. And Paul says, look, if there is no resurrection, I agree. Let's eat. Let's drink. Let's be merry. Tomorrow we die. And Solomon comes and says, well, your eating is vanity because you're just going to die. Your drinking is vanity. You're just going to die. Your merrymaking, vanity. You're just going to die. In walks the Christian with a better story to tell. You can't eat, drink, and, tomorrow, and, and be merry because tomorrow you die. But here's a better story. Let's eat. Let's drink. Let's be merry. Because yesterday we were dead. We've already died. Remember what we've seen in our, in our study of John's gospel, that in John's gospel, eternal life doesn't take place when we die. It takes place when we surrender and give our lives to Jesus. That's the real first death. So the blessings of the eternal are, eyes and, are ours in a very real sense here and now. So let us be merry. Let us experience and share joy. Let us have peace and contentment and share with one another the love of Jesus. Why? We've already died. We're already living the eternal life. Yesterday we were dead. We have reasons to celebrate. And you'll notice in verse 33, you take this holiness, this, this attitude rooted in resurrection, and you apply it to the community. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Notice there he's taking two problems. One is... is is, is, is one that reflects a bad philosophy. Here is a very uh, general rule, right? You've heard this, and I've used this before, uh, show me your friends, I'll show you your future, right? We understand this, right? If you surround yourself with people who want the best for you and, and, and want good things, you're going to become like them. If you want people who are the opposite, surround yourself with the opposite. That is what it is you're going to get. Surround yourself with scoundrels, you're going to be a scoundrel. Surround yourself with the righteous, you're going to find righteousness. It really is a simple point. Bad company corrupts good morals, right? Uh, and so he says here, you have a church in front of you. I'm writing this letter to. If you really want to pursue Christ, 
do not neglect the gathering of saints. So the resurrection leads to holiness, but more than that, it leads us to togetherness. Together we become more like Christ. And you'll see the final appeal, really, you can just read it, it's pretty straightforward. Wake up, um, wake up, stop sinning, grow in wisdom, you fool, right? That's it. Wake up, stop sinning, get wiser. Verse 34. And so if, if, if we have, if the resurrection helps us with grief, it fuels boldness, and it leads to holiness, here's a good summary for it. Wake up. Why? Because you're going to be living for eternity. Wake up. Stop sinning. Grow in wisdom. All of that rooted in the hope we have of the resurrection. Well, when... I was growing up, we, we sang from a hymn book. It was almost as holy as the Bibles that were right next to it in the pews. And uh, you could not add or take away from the hymn book. You didn't have to sing everything in it, but, but to add or take away from the hymn book was blasphemy. But we did add two things to, to the hymn book. What we, we did to every hymnal, I don't know whose job this was, but we had glued a hymn on the inside cover and another hymn on the outside cover. Okay. Both of them were Billy Gaither hymns. Of course. One of them was written in 1971. It was written when uh, Bill Gaither was holding his third child just born in the hospital. He was looking around the world and he saw a lot of loss, turmoil, social upheaval, rumors of war, loss of public trust, assassinations, drug trafficking, and war monopolizing the headlines. And he had reason to despair. He had reason to worry about the future life this new baby of theirs was going to enter into. However, he was reading the Gospel of John and came across Jesus' words in chapter 14, verse 19. Because I live, you also will live. And he couldn't get his mind off of that phrase. Here was life, and he was worried about death. But if you looked at the death of Jesus, he saw that what you really have there is a story of life. What do we really have to fear? So he wrote these words that became one of his most famous hymns. God sent his son, and they called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon, and empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the joy and pride he gives. But sweeter still the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days because he lives. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living just because he lives. Well, let's pray. Father,